this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode two for the week of May 20th, 2013. I'm Jeff O'Neill, and I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're the editors of BookRiot.com. Rebecca, how are you? I'm good, but it's hot, man. I'm here in Richmond, Virginia, and it is 93 degrees. It's, it's uh, summertime. You can feel it. My last day of teaching today, it's 73 degrees in New York. I've got shorts mm-hmm. on. I'm in the middle of a Dan exciting. Brown book. You, you know what? I, I can I can smell it. It's Feels like summer. summer. Summertime. It's nice. It's good. If and it were not only uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, we could have ourselves a summer beverage. We could. And there's nothing really stopping us except for the ice clinking noises that would be annoying and probably disturbing to But will people. also probably happen at some point. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's true. In the life of yeah. this podcast, there will at right. some point be. Book Riot Podcast After Hours. Draper-esque ice clinking. All right. Out. So, I mean, so let's do follow-up first. We'll do one follow-up okay. from last week. So you, you saw Gatsby. I did. And give us your 30-second reaction, because that's what the internet is doing. It's oh, all right, 30 reaction. seconds? Okay, yes, my Gatsby reaction. I thought it was pretty great. It really stuck to the spirit of the story. Um, Toby Maguire, not the greatest Nick Carraway. I could have lived without that. I could have lived without the frame story that Baz Luhrmann built around it. Do you know about this? I do. Has the internet I'm, told I, you? I, yeah, I know. It, when yeah. in doubt, have a narration that happens in a sanitarium. You know, that's right. just how it goes. Yeah, we don't, we don't need that. In my younger and more vulnerable years, it's such a great way to open a book, and it should have just opened straight onto, yeah. I mean, onto him in his younger and more vulnerable years. Look, I don't <laughs> want to get into a Talmudic discussion of The Great Gatsby, but I, I, I don't. I don't like that myself personally. Yeah. I think I understand why they were doing it because the first person narration is hard to understand in a movie without context. Um, but I wish they wouldn't have done it. But you know what? That's not my that's not my problem. And but, a, a minor quibble. I guess all right. quibbles are minors, right? You can't have a major quibble because that's right. just a problem. It's, then. Right. That, then it's a problem. It was beautiful. Mm. The party scenes were gorgeous. Yeah. They did a kit, uh, Stein Kellner, who was one of our writers at Book Riot, covered this. And she did mention that they dropped one of the best lines in the whole book, which is the line about Daisy's voice being full of money, which is one of my favorite lines in all of literature. So I was sad that that didn't show up. But for the most part, I thought it was really fantastic. And the hip hop soundtrack, which I was a little skeptical about, um, was really brilliant. I've heard that uh, from so many people. Like, I should say this, that most we've asked our readers across Facebook, Twitter, on the site, elsewhere, and mm-hmm. most rank-and-file viewers, not critics, not people who write about books professionally online, they loved it. Most people really seem to like it. And of course, you're going to get one or two, but I'd say 95%. Is that fair from what you've seen from people saying they really liked it? I think that's fair. You know, I was looking at Rotten Tomatoes. It's been a couple of days, so I don't have current facts in front of me. But the Rotten Tomatoes rating was not great, and they were calling it rotten. Uh but and that's just that's just movie critics, right? That's no, just, that's anybody. You can Isn't go it? on Rotten. I thought Rotten Tomatoes. It's like they take oh. reviews from 
newspapers and magazines and assign it a percentile and then add them all up or something like that. I didn't think my it was Rotten Tomatoes literacy is wanting. I'm sorry. Yeah, you can email us at podcast.bookwriter.com. <laughs> you can, <laughs> right. There's your quibble. Rebecca doesn't know enough about Rotten, Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes. So. Uh, but I, yeah, I think it's fair to say most of our readers and the people that we've talked to enjoyed it. Um, I went with my husband. He's not a professional book person by any stretch, but he loves The Great Gatsby and he enjoyed the movie as well. And I had an epiphany about flappers and fly girls being basically the same thing, 70 mm. years apart from each other. So that was nice. Okay. Oh, I just looked at Rotten Tomatoes and it's it's a split percentage. There's part of it that's the critics and part of it is user mm. reviews. So All right. Um, that's interesting. And on that score, it looks like, well, this is interesting. 51% of the critics' reviews were positive. So it's like barely fresh. But mm. the audience, 84% liked it. That, that's a big difference. For that a, is a, a big major difference. movie, that's a very big difference. I, I wonder, wonder why that. Oh, I was just about to say. <laughs> I wonder why that is. I wonder why that is. That's so interesting. I don't now know. Now we're supposed maybe, to say something. Nah, see, that's. I, we're supposed I, to say something I, smart now. I don't know. I'm. I'm not in the critics' well, head. I mean, I, that's true. I guess that's true. I guess I don't try to think like a critic when I see the film. So I I don't know what I would say that should have been done differently. Maybe the frame story was enough to to ruin it. Well, I guess for them, I guess there's several possibilities and and more. One is that maybe a professional critic is going to be more interested in how it relates to the book, and sure. if there's some liberties taken, that's one thing. Um, Maybe yeah, the just, average reader doesn't care if it looks like the book. There's like, this is a big movie. It's a lot of fun. It's summertime. It's pretty. There's Leo. There's music. Uh, it felt to me like the like the beating heart of the book was really there, though. Mm-hmm. That that scene in the hotel room where they all get wasted and it's sweaty outside, and uh, you know Nick has only been drunk once before in his life, and now he's surrounded by adultery and alcohol, and it's sweltering. It, it was just perfect and the music was pounding and the sad scenes were perfectly sad. What I'm saying, Jeff, is the critics are wrong. Well, I mean, you know, it also did very well at the box office. I mean, $51 million, that's really good. It didn't beat Iron Man in its second weekend, but it's The Great mm-hmm. Gatsby and it's, you know, it's a literature mm-hmm. title. There's a literary title, there's no doubt about that, versus mm-hmm. Iron Man 3, which has, you know, two big and movies behind it and the Avengers and everything else. I was impressed with the reaction, with what it did. Um, I guess The Great Gatsby 2 is probably not in the offing, but... Uh, it seems like it's been a really good movie and a positive thing all the way. Well, it's not embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Like some of us oh, thought it right. might be embarrassing. Like a really good chance it was <laughs> it going to be just not cringe-inducing. Or Scarlet Letter. <laughs> yeah, right. Definitely. And it's a it's a great double feature with Iron Man three. Oh, I did that's right. That. You did that. And you did that double feature. Yeah, it was really fun. I did Iron Man three first, and like you know, things just exploded, and it was comic booky and great. Um, and then we took a serious turn and did Gatsby. But there's this really fulfilling moment where. In Gatsby, they refer to him as a billionaire playboy, and then it just rings in your head about that scene with Robert Downey Jr. in The Avengers introducing himself as a billionaire philanthropist playboy. And I was like, this is so perfect. You know, that makes me wonder what the genesis of the billionaire philanthropist playboy was. I mean, was Gatsby the first one? I mean, me? there were I mean, robber barons right in the 19th century, but mm-hmm. do we even have the idea of like this billionaire playboy, man of man of about town kind of figure? Yeah, and I mean, now we have Jay-Z, which yeah. sort of made the... It made it all come together for me with the coming back around to the soundtrack idea. Um, it really the, there's a lot of resonance, I think, between the especially the hip hop that they chose and the story and sort of what uh, the opulence and decadence of 20s culture pre stock market crash right. and what like especially what hip hop looked like in the 90s. Um, right. Yeah, that's really interesting. So good. There's I, a, I have an unwritten thesis about that somewhere. Yeah, there's the 20s. Uh, 
Gatsby versus uh, Ain't Nothing But a G thing, you know, mm. at the same time. Baby. All right. So, but the big, so that's followed from last week. Gatsby, go see. I, I think we could say if you're interested, go see it. I think so. Yeah, right? for sure. If you're on the fence, most of the people we've talked to really liked it. Ignore the critics by and large. Unless you are a critic, then you're going to hate it. Or at least you have a 51% chance of liking it, which, you know, that's a coin flip. Um, mm-hmm. But the big story this week, of course, big book of the year, probably be the biggest selling book of the year, right? Oh, I think so. I'd be shocked sure. if it wasn't just coming out of the gates. Dan Brown's Inferno dropped on mm-hmm. Tuesday. Indeed it did. And unsurprisingly bad reviews. Unsurprisingly. It's like so boring how unsurprising the reviews are. Yeah, it's bad. And we're both in the middle of it. We are. I'm, I'm ex- pretty much exactly at the halfway mark. I'm about 300 pages into it. I, you know, I'm loving it. I love Dan Brown because he's just exactly what he says yeah. he's going to be. There's going to be a caper. Handsome symbologist Robert Langdon is going to solve problems and be handsome. Class A, art history, gobbledygook, mumbo jumbo. I mean, Class it's just pure, a. fine, triple grade A mumbo jumbo about history and art, which is what you sign up for. If you don't sure. want that, stay away. Go away. There's, you know, symbolism, as you would expect, in- right. including a boat that the bad guy lives on called the Mendacium, which, like, if that does not conjure cat on a hot tin roof and a- an old man muttering Mendacity, like, <laughs> <laughs> over and over. Or maybe that's just me, but I'm really loving that the boat is called the Mendacium. <laughs> that's, it's really funny. And I was thinking about this, like, why do we like Dan Brown? And I don't want to get all think PC here. I'll leave that for Gladwell or whoever wants to take this on someday. But, you know, what the specific pleasure of a Dan Brown book is, like as opposed to corollaries like a Bond book or a Stieg Larsson book or a James Patterson. I I think it's the history stuff, right? Is that I, what it is? I think he takes these revered pieces of literature and, and revered pieces of culture and religion and pokes at them and knows he's going to make people mad. But you get all that history and you get interesting stuff about Dante all over right. this book. And I think he just like he just delivers in a way that's really fun. And and Dan Brown's not pretending to be anybody else. He's not like pulling a Nicholas Sparks and doing an interview with USA Today talking about how, you know, he should be more revered than Cormac McCarthy right. or something. Like Dan Brown knows what he is. Dee Brizzle has care, no shame. Or doesn't care. I mean, that's he just yeah. that was his thing. And look, I'm looking for one every three years. I just yeah. want one every three years. That's I, all I want. I will always buy them and I will always read them. I, did you decide between ebook and print? Which way did you go? I went print because I wanted to be able to sit in the sweltering Virginia sun and read. And uh, so it's a big book. hardback, right? It is a, a big, big hardback. hardback. How many pages in print? I'm reading on ebook, and so five hundred and sixty, five seventy, something like that. I'm reading it on my phone, so it has like nineteen thousand five hundred twenty-eight <laughs> pages. So I have no idea how long the book is. <laughs> That's got to feel good when you start it for your chances of finishing. Like page one of nineteen thousand. Good luck, sucker. Well, I mean, as you know, I'm all ebook now. Um, mm-hmm. My last hardback purchase was James Salter's All That Is, but that's a subject for a different time. But one thing I can't get used to is not knowing how much more of the book there is. Like I, My brain can't do the algebra of, it's, oh, 19,000 pages on my phone means 568 pages in print. Like I just can't get there, which I would have thought I would have been more bothered by because I was always one of those people like most readers are who like to know like how many pages mm-hmm. they have left at such and such a rate. I'll probably be done by X. Now I'm just like, I'm reading, and it'll be over when it's over, and that's kind of the way it is. So that's that's a change, but 568 pages, that's that's a pretty good sink your teeth into some Florentine geography kind of stuff. It is. It's it's great. I'm, I, just, I just love Dan Brown. I think he needs a rebrand. You know, there's – may I rant for a moment? Let's do it. 
Okay, we're gonna. We were really great last week and happy. So I'm. I just want to be a little bit. I know. Ranty that, you know, a Dan book, a Dan Brown book comes out. Dan Brown will sell millions of copies. He will make millions of dollars for Random House, enabling them to publish all sorts of other things that are not going to make millions of dollars. But a Dan Brown book coming out seems to require that publishing starts wringing its hands over what is the future of books, and it and it boils down to this like. This thing that is popular is not the same thing that the literary establishment thinks is good. And why can't the good stuff be popular? And shouldn't we teach readers what really has literary merit? Which, I mean, the people listening to this are probably not likely to be surprised that <laughs> you and I not. don't that you and I don't find much value in telling readers that what they like is not good. Yeah, um, that's just not fun. No it's one just, likes the school marm. You it's know, just, that's just not boring. It's, just not fun. it's been done a thousand times. Like. Also, Dan Brown doesn't care that you don't think he has a literary merit establishment. Like, it's, I mean, I guess we I'm all just want the things we think are important to get more attention. I mean, sure. that's just true. I doubt there's anyone out there who's like, yeah, you know, everything I care about gets about the right amount of attention. Right. Like, no, no one says that, right? No, I mean, who, who says that? Right. So part of it is, you know, there's all this. I think one of the frustrations is people see that one of these books comes out, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, a Dan Brown book. And there's a flood of people reading it. Mm-hmm. Right. There's just all these people interested in buying the book and talking about it and being interested in. And they're like, why don't they stick around for stuff I like? And that is frustrating. And I can understand that. And I feel that some way. I mean, we both have books that we've loved sure. that we're like, I wish a bunch of people read this and I wish this person had a better career and blah, 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 blah. But the idea that since you know what you think is good is not what everyone else is buying or reading and paying attention to, that's your problem, I think. That, that's not the reader's problem. That's not publishing problem. That's not Dan Brown's problem. I think so. And anytime that there are millions of people who don't buy a ton of books making their way into bookstores or, you know, pressing the little bookstore button on their iPads and e-readers and buying a book and reading it and getting excited about it, I think that's a thing worth celebrating. And I think it's also worth remembering that these are the things that help publishers stay alive, whether we like it or not. And our friends at independent bookstores and non-independent bookstores. I mean, Every single Random House employee from the like lowliest person in the mailroom to the highest C-level executive got a nice bonus at the sorry, end of five 2012. Grand. Five, five grand. grand. Thanks to E.L. James. Not thanks to like millions of people knocking down the door to read The Orphan Master's Son. No, that's that's just not that's how true. it goes. That's true. I mean, there's a wider ecosystem. They can coexist. You know, I, I don't think we need to pretend it's a zero-sum game. Now, would I like some people to actually go read The Inferno? Yeah. Would, sure, that, that would, would be great. great. I think you'd probably like it. I would also read a little bit about it because it is nuts, certifiably insane stuff, but it's interesting and it's been really important. And boy, does Dan Brown hit you over the head with how important The Inferno is in that book. Wow. Yeah, and this would be actually, I think, a case where an enhanced ebook would be awesome. I need where, a map of Florence. They're yeah. Running around the Ponte Vecchio you got a map and of they're bubbling gardens and they're, they're going this way and they're in this cave and I'm just like, where the heck am I? And they're running right. around. Or like, here's a picture of the painting that they're referring to. Here's a picture of the building. A map of Florence would be hugely helpful because Dan Brown just sends me straight to Google. I'm Googling the crap out of this book. Um, I I know. There there should be like a a page that double – it's Doubleday title, right? Random House Doubleday? Yeah, Random House. They just have a page like, here's your supporting materials. Like, here's a map of Florence (laughs) and here's here's all the artwork that we get talked about and all this stuff. I I dug out my copy of The Inferno that I've had since high school because I had a really brave high school English teacher Uh, who taught The Inferno my senior year and gave us awesome maps of the different levels of hell. And so I'm I'm using that, this thing that I haven't looked at since I was like 19 or 20 – looking back at my copy of The Inferno and Googling all of these works of art. And that's sort of great 
too. Like how many yeah. popular authors do we have that are sending? And I'm, I'm just assuming that I'm not the only one who was like, I oh, would I like to actually so. yeah, see yeah, this absolutely. painting. It's very cool that right. readers are getting, you know, sort of motivated to look up stuff they wouldn't have to see otherwise. That makes me think again about why Dan Brown is so popular. And, and one of the things I think is it, kind of a rebirth and return to these classical renaissance liberal arts european systems of knowledge and understanding and symbols that kind of gotten washed away especially if you're american right you don't mm. remember you don't you know go and see botticelli maybe had an art history class in college or something like that but much like james bond the original ian fleming books were basically like tour books of post-world war ii the globe fly to japan haven't been there for you know no one's been there in 20 years you get to go down to italy and up to switzerland and all these places have been ravaged by war there's in this new thing called the plant commercial airlines where you could go and fly and see the world. I wonder if this is sort of a cultural tourism that's appealing about the mm. Dan Brown stuff. You know, you get to learn about Da Vinci and my, did you read the lost symbol? I never, I, yeah, you know what? I skipped I that did. one. I was in the middle of dissertation stuff and I, I didn't get around to it, but was that one? Okay. I should maybe pick that one up. At some you point. know, I think of all the Dan Browns, not your favorite, the lost I can symbol, tell. I can tell. not my favorite. All it right, might be enough. the weakest, but it has a really high ridiculous factor. Mm. So if you just Higher want... Higher than this one? Because this one yeah. I think is like a 9 or a 10 on the ridiculous. Oh, no. There's a high ridiculous oh, factor. Baby. Okay. Um, so if you just want to read something that you can plow through and roll your eyes at a little bit, like the the big thing in... So each Dan Brown book has a big issue. And the big issue in Inferno is this bad guy who is trying to create his own solution to overpopulation. Yeah, well, I'll and, give you one guess what that is. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> and the big issue in The Lost Symbol is dark matter. Oh, all right. I remember hearing about that. Well, that's like double gobbledygook because it's right. like the history stuff on top of science. Okay, yeah, great. they spend all this time at CERN and in Switzerland. <laughs> oh, and it's, I mean, it, it's bananas, but it's really just, I mean, it's just fun and great to roll your eyes at. And I think you're right that there's, it's appealing, this sort of cultural renaissance thing that you get about his books. Also, you get to feel like you're doing something sort of smart by right, learning yeah. about art and history, even when you know that what you're reading is commercial fiction. Like I call it's, that the goodwill hunting effect. When you're, oh. you feel like you're watching something that's, you know, smarter than it actually is. It makes <laughs> it feel good. Yeah. I love goodwill hunting, but. I do too. Well. I think it's, I want to return to, you know, just unpretentious, fun enjoyment of books that are unpretentious and fun. Dan Brown is not trying to be anything but unpretentious and fun. Yeah. I don't think. No one is pretending that he's about to win the Nobel Prize in literature. Well, we'll return to it. Maybe we'll do a follow-up next week when we've both finished it. And no, we didn't spoil anything there. It's in Florence. We you didn't. Know that now. Yeah. And everything you could read on the blurb uh, is what we've covered. So and, maybe uh, next week we'll give our total impressions, spoiler-free, mm -hmm. of what we thought and Anyway, um, that's the Dan Brown book, but that's a good segue because today's literary birthday, this week's literary birthday, just doing one, Dante himself. Only need one. How's that for May 21st? Couldn't they have held the book May 21st, Dante's birthday? Doesn't that seem like a good opportunity? It doesn't. May 21st would have been the week, you know, right before Memorial Day when everybody travels and you need a good summer book. Because yeah, it, it came out on the 14th, so just hold it to the next Tuesday release. Anyway, not my problem. Anyway. <laughs> Dante, born May 21st, 1265 uh, in Florence. Longtime Florentine, heavily involved in the political situation there. So here's the, here's the trivia. He was exiled to Ravenna because he was an agitator and the wrong Guelphs, believe it or not, there were more than one Guelph party trying to take over Florence in the 14th century. Got exiled. He died. Ravenna buried him. 500 years later, Florence says, my bad. Shouldn't have done that. 19th century. And they won him back. 
But Ravenna's like, they've got this great tourist attraction. People come see Dante. So Florence go has and built a tomb. There's an empty tomb to Dante in Florence. You can go see it. Nothing mm-hmm. there. I'm going to call my band the wrong Guelphs. The empty tomb of Florence. The empty tombs of Florence. Um, but even, Florence wanted so bad, and Ravenna thought that some Florentine soldiers were going to come get it, that they hid his bones for a while so that Florence wouldn't come steal his bones from Ravenna. Crazy, right? Yeah. I hope someone crazy. cares enough to come try to steal my bones when I'm gone. The bone stealing thing, it seems to not be such a thing these days, Jeff. No. You know what they should have done? Put out fake bones. Yeah. Just some dude's bones. Like Florence says, we got Dante. And everyone's like. Imposter bones. Yeah. I mean, what a great trick. I mean, who would have known? They didn't have carbon dating and stuff like that. They wouldn't have known. Oh, before we move off of Dan Brown, can we talk about the Dan Brown phone sex song? I I think. I I saw this and I have to tell you, I can't listen to this. I don't know what it is. (laughs) I'm not pressing that button. I'm not clicking on that one. In his younger and more vulnerable years, Dan Brown recorded a CD in the early 90s. I didn't know this. He had a band and he had a recording career for a Mm -hmm. while. Yeah. And in interviews, he's mentioned that it's a good thing that he didn't try to pursue music as a career because clearly it was not meant to be. (laughs) And uh, a BuzzFeed writer dug up the CD, and we'll, we'll drop a link in the show notes, but there are little sound clips in this Buzz, BuzzFeed post of several of the songs from the Dan Brown early 90s CD. And the, the real gem is uh, one about phone sex called 976 Love. Uh, and the sample lyric that they include here, which is just laugh out loud, fantastic when you listen to it, is I take you to bed and push the phone to my head. You make me feel like a man. Wow. So if you think Dan Brown's books are not good, you should check out his music and then you can see that he has grown as a writer. Really, I think maybe Dan Brown is just pulling off the best prank ever. Wow. I mean, it's I mean, Jeff, you have to listen. I to mean, it. look, of all of Dan Brown's many virtues, um, subtle dialogue is not one of them. And a song about phone sex does not seem to be right up his alley of things. You'd be like, it, you know what? Dan Brown should try that. Right, right. The uh, it not is the, not not the author I come that I think of when I think of like who should try writing a phone sex song. It's not it's not yeah. Dan Brown, not Ro- top and, ten. And the you know the flirting in the Dan Brown books is not great either. Is that Robert, what that is? I'm not there sure. There's like, like awkward, it's like vaguely moments. sexual harassment or just Where, nothing. Yeah, where it feels like maybe you're getting pillow talk with Robert Langdon. I don't know. Like it, there's always an there is always like an awkward moment yeah, he, where he doesn't like, do the romantic bad badinage very well. Flirting is that what he's doing? I'm not sure, but Dan Brown, or maybe I think I'm just going to call him D Brizzle because he needs a hip hop nickname. He, he has he has the most boring name in he in does all letters and, too. And maybe then we can get people excited about his coolness that with a hip hop nickname. So D Brizzle, he's That's not a player. Cool. He just flirts a lot. All right, let's do our first sponsor. I'll, I'm right. doing the first sponsor. No Let's Gin is back. They came back Woo-hoo. for another round. Thank you, No Let's. Thank you, No Let's. So this is No Let's Silver Dry Gin, not your grandfather's gin. This is a modern gin. These are the signature botanicals. So if you try No Let's Gin, taste for these. Turkish rose, peach, and raspberry. If you try No Let's, see if you can you can detect some of those. No Let's has been distilling for 300 years. The family business turned into a bigger business. These guys made Kettle One Vodka. These are made, No Let's Silver Dry Gin made in small batches, quality craftsmanship, good stuff. You'll be surprised, fruit, floral aroma, not what you expect from gin. Check out uh, their Facebook page, No Let's Gins on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash No Let's Gin. Check them out, and if you do check them out, and check any other liquor out, always drink responsibly. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what Rebecca and I are telling you to do. Do it. Drinking responsibly. Yes. We always drink responsibly. 
We do. And that signature botanicals thing, I think, is really interesting here. Because if you've, I didn't really think that I liked gin, but apparently that's because most gin is made with juniper. Juniper, which tastes like evergreen trees. I mean, juniper sounds like how your grandmother smells. Yeah. So check them out. Thanks so much, Noah. It's gin. And we're on to another story. We got It's not really a story, this next one. This is just a cool thing. Just a cool thing. You want to take this or want me to take this? You take it. You found I it. I found it. Bookbookgoose.com. It's a website. It's a simple concept. You, it randomly gives you books from the Amazon bookstore. That's what it does. So you go bookbookgoose.com. Book, book, It'll have a random book on there. You can see that, whatever it is. Then you hit the next button and something else random come up. Let's, you know, let's try this right now. Let's I'm doing it right now. Book, I couldn't resist. Book, book. I, I played around with it a little bit. Did you play around with it at all? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. You tell me what you get. It's taking forever to load. Oh, come on, Book Book Goose. Okay. Oh, I got the notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci. What? That's Which, really see, awesome. Okay, is Book Book Goose listening to us right I don't now? Know. Maybe, well, I got the detection of PBCs in natural waters by front-facing fluorometry on the side <laughs> on account of their fluorescence quantum yields interaction with humic substances. So it is truly random. That seems random. Uh, do, when I do, hit, the next one, do the next I one. I got uh, Promised Land, 13 Books That Changed America. I got so Southwest, far, this is relevant to my interest. Southwest Indians, Native Americans, hardcover. Uh, I'm, I'm over two. Got to admit, got to admit. Yeah, I'm. My third one is a book called "What's Up" by Mick Manning, which is a children's book that introduces the concepts of atmosphere and altitude by taking the reader gradually higher. I got a third-party service repair manual for 1998 GMC vans. Ooh. <laughs> I hope you're not taking these personally. I take everything personally. I mean. Book Book Goose does not think you are very exciting. Oh, oh, my next one is The Guy's Big Book of Poetry. Poems by a man dealing with love, relationships, a father's loss, and a little sarcasm about some sacred cows. Interesting. Called a must-read for women, weirdly. Hmm. Did you see the Broetry book that came out last year? No, I can't. I know what you're talking about, and I can't even talk about that. (laughs) One more. It's my favorite thing when you can't even. One more book. Uh, The Selected Poems of Tufu. T-U-F-U. Is it? Asian poet of some kind? Yes. Renowned by the Chinese literati. Tu Fu uh, wrote between 712, or lived between 712 and 770 AD. Okay. So it's from way back. Okay, my last one is Finding Themselves, the letters of an American army chief nurse in a British hospital in France from World War I, apparently, I guess. This is sort of interesting. It's kind of fun. You know, I'm not sure I'm going to come back to it again and again, but it tells me a couple things. One, there are a lot of books out there, boy. Mm-hmm. I mean, whoa, there's a lot yes. of books out there. And there's a lot of them I don't care about. But I think this also fills kind of a niche that we feel like we're missing. Am I wrong about this? I don't know if this is the answer. Mm. I think it's cool. You think it's cool? What would you change it's, about it? Well, I mean, you know, you play the game where you spin the globe around with your eyes closed and put right. your finger down and say that that's where you're going to go next. Like, that's a great game. But if you actually had to go wherever your finger landed, right. you would you would probably want to stack the decks yeah. a little bit. Hard to, you know, like Southern Tunisia. Eh. Right. Yeah, you can't really stack the decks here. Not that anybody's forcing you to, to go to these. But it would, I think this would be super cool if you could narrow down what you were looking for. Well, I think a one little thing is bit. that most, I stuff, read most bookstores online are hard to browse. Yeah, I mean, in the true. way that we understand browsing, where you're just sort of looking around and see what they have and let your eye wander. You've got to click on stuff and go to lists and categories. This is truly random. I, much more random than any bookstore you're going to go to. Like you're not going to go into a bookstore and sort of close your eyes and play pin the tail on the hardback. Um, <laughs> but uh, this is, it's fun. It's fun. Check it out. See if you like it. Uh, I think they make money by if you buy something, 
mm-hmm. um, which is fine. We do that too on the side, I should say, and support these guys. If you like it, go check it out. That's fun. Bookbookgoose.com. Yeah, book, book, There's is all cool. these sort of fun book tool things online that we like to find. Uh, you want to do the next one? Yeah. So stats. the next we got story, stats. we love us some statistics. Oh, we do. You know, we throw stats back and forth all the time. Uh, so I'm looking now at a report from Bookstats uh, that was featured on paid content earlier this week, noting that ebooks made up 20% of the U.S. consumer book industry in 2012, up from 5% in 2011. Wow. There's, there's a lot interesting here. I'm always surprised because our readers talk about ebooks so much and our writers talk about ebooks right. so much and it feels like ebooks are such a part of our lives and also that ongoing like you can't have our print books take your ebooks away sort of railing against ebooks seems so loud but like ebooks just have 20% so far that's it's good but 20% is not uh, threatening to overtake what would you have guessed like if someone said, what percentage of the book market is ebook? Like yesterday before you saw this, what would you have said? I think I would have guessed like 40. So less than 50. Less than 50 still. Right. But yeah. 20 seemed low. Okay. It just seemed low to me. Yeah. But if I, I mean, and 5% is a, I think that's a solid 20% is 33%, 33% more than 15. Yeah, that's well, pretty especially good when you, growth. The other stat at the end of this article is that the whole book industry was down taken in total 0.9% from last year. So mm-hmm. it's 33% up when the whole industry is going down. So I think that even throws it into greater mm-hmm. relief how fast and big it's growing, especially compared to everything else that's going on in books. Like it's just huge. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a while before it's 50% at this rate. I mean, maybe I we so. are nearing some sort of equilibrium for a while or whatever. And uh, there's an interesting graph a little farther down about publisher net revenues by yeah. online versus brick and mortar. And I just always forget that brick and mortar bookstores still account for more money, like a couple billion dollars more in sales than online bookstores do. The stuff we talk about online and you and I are, I don't know if guilty is the right word. Maybe I'll say I'm guilty. I pay attention to ebook talk and uh, online book selling. Mm. I think it sucks up so much of the oxygen when we talk about books online that it doesn't quite represent what's actually happening still. Though these stats could be trailing indicators, right? That's true. This is last year. Maybe we're ahead of the game in terms of thinking about what's going to happen. I wonder, we'll come back and check the tape on this when it comes. What year would you say? Just get, give me a guess that ebooks become 50% of the, the consumer market. Let's, let's keep it to that. What year would you think? Hmm. 10 well, years? 10 years? I don't know. Do you think 33% year over year growth is sustainable? Like, um, well, it can't be because at some point it would be much larger than the total right. book market. So I, um, I'm going to say. Less than a decade. Less than a decade. If it's 5%, so if we go 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, that would only be, what, seven years? Mm-hmm. So that's the over-under. I'm going under. I think it's going to be sooner than seven years. Okay. I'm saying when I'm 40, 51% of the total book market is going to be digital. So we'll see. I mean, some some argue that the people who are excited about ebooks and will buy an e-reader had done bottom already. And so we're going to slow it down in that way, too. I think the thing, it, there might be in sort of an interregnum in the growth as the market matures, but what I see from my students who are 18, all of them are reading ebooks. So when they're in their prime book buying years in their 40s, that's when I, I think ebooks really mm-hmm. peak. And people who are, were going to buy dedicated e readers, maybe they already have, but yeah, tablets maybe. are such a growing thing still. And I think once tablets fully replace, E-readers, we're going to see people who are using their iPad for work but have been buying right. print books for a while decide that it's time to check out 
this ebook business because they're already taking their iPad everywhere. Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, we all want all of our bookstore owning and working in friends to stay open. But um, at some point, too, there's going to be a point where it's just going to be so much easier to find ebooks. Um, depending what happens with Barnes & Noble, that's a story we didn't talk about last week of are they going to sell Nook or what's going to happen with Microsoft? We'll catch that when there's like actual real news and not just idle speculation. But, you know, the fate of bookstore, physical print book bookstores is going to be mm-hmm. tied to how ebooks do as well. The longer those stick around, the sort of the less quickly ebooks will grow. Um, so that that's an interesting stat. So that, when you're thinking about ebooks and talking to your friends about ebooks, you can you can throw that stat in. It's only twenty percent of the total market right now. Be cool, people. Twenty percent. Be, cool. Be cool. Don't chill. We'll tell you when to panic. You'll be, we'll let you. We'll hit. We'll tell you when to hit the panic button on ebooks. I don't Not know, yet. Jeff. I don't know if we have a panic button. I do. It's right here. You do? It's right here. You're not sharing. That's not very nice. Well, maybe I could drop it into Skype. We need, a, we need an extension <laughs> can we, for Skype. Can we drop box the panic button? Yeah, put the panic button in Dropbox. It's good. I could use that. Of course, the only time I'd really use the panic button is when my internet's down. Right. And then I couldn't use it because it's in Dropbox. That's womp, womp. All right, there we go. All right, what do we got next? Next, we have our next sponsor. Oh, you're doing this one. Okay, go for it. I'm doing this one. Uh, Our other sponsor for this week is Book Riot's own uh, current Kickstarter project, Start Here, Volume 2. Read your way into 25 amazing authors, or actually 25 more amazing authors. Uh, So we do this thing at Book Riot called a Reading Pathway, where we take an author that you have maybe wanted to try, but you haven't because you don't know where to start. And we tell you where to start, which book, um, which couple books to read on your way, and then how to arrive at that author's big final destination. We published the first one back uh, last fall, a successful Kickstarter for that. And now we're gunning for volume two. There's just a little bit more than a week left in this Kickstarter to raise $20,000. And we are more than $13,000 of the way there. So if start here, volume two sounds like a thing that you would be into, you can check out the Kickstarter. We'll drop the link in the show notes and a $5 back gets you the uh, ebook. Uh, Yeah. Yep. $20 $20 gets you a print version, and there's all combinations in between. All sorts of cool stuff. And we're running some giveaways on the site, just depending uh, on when you find your way to Book Riot. But several uh, cool giveaways in support of this project that will also thank you for sharing it if you take some time to share it with your friends and your social networks as well. So and you are going to be writing one. I am. I'm going to write one on James Salter. That's awesome. So I'm going to spend my summer reading James Salter in the sweltering Virginia sun. I mean, I should write a song. I know, right? I, I'm writing Toni Morrison, and uh, there's something else I'm for sure writing. Uh, what is it? I don't know. Oh, come on. Come on, Jeff. Shake the brain out. Shake it out. Shake it out. Philip Roth. There it is. Ah, oh, right. Philip Roth. Good good segue, because one of the authors we get requested all the time is Faulkner, and mm-hmm. our good friend uh, Willie Faulkner is going to appear and start here, Volume 2. And that leads us to our next story, which is we saw this week released the um, movie trailer for Jam- James Franco's adaptation of As I Lay Dying, one of Faulkner's n- most famous novels. And in, in the Dog Bites Man uh, story is that it doesn't look terrible. It really doesn't. I'm going to say it looks good. It I'm, does. I'm going there. It, it does look good. It looks and good. I, I was prepared to hate it. As we all were, as all right-thinking, red-blooded Americans were, <laughs> we were ready to jump on this. Right. At this point, we are well-trained. We are supposed to be exasperated by all things James Franco and literary. That's right. But this looks pretty great, actually. It's a difficult book, and difficult. the trailer the trailer looks 
like he's translated it into something that people will actually want to watch. And I think James Franco might just go and get new readers for Faulkner, which is sort of the ultimate awesome thing to have happen after a book related movie. Yeah. If you're going to, if you're going to adapt Faulkner for film, I think this is the right choice. You've read this. Have you read this? Oh yeah. Yeah. I've read this. I don't know how you could do like the sound and the fury. No, no way. Cause it has like a followable story, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to, um, no spoilers. We're not going to say anything. Go watch the trailer. It's on the site. We'll put this in the show notes. Show notes will be at bookriot.com slash episode two, number two, episode mm-hmm. two for the second episode. You can watch it there. Um, but it's not Sound of the Fury. It's not Go Down Moses. It's not Absalom, Absalom, some of the stuff that's really hard to follow. This has a, it's still difficult and has shifting perspectives in the book, but they go from one place to someplace else with something they want to do and things happen. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like, well, yeah. You and can the, actually like, film the, that stuff. The opening premise that this, their mother is dying and she's lying in her bedroom watching them out right. her window while they build her coffin. Yeah. Good is, opening scene. Yeah. It's such a haunting, haunting way. Scene. Um, it, it looks pretty great. I mean, normally I'd say that trying to adapt Faulkner is like having chicken for breakfast, breakfast. Like you can do it, but why? Just stay away. Just stick with what you can do. But this one, I got to say, I'm really interested. I hope it's great. Like I'm, I always hope literary adaptations mm-hmm. are great. I always hope they're good. Well, it's featured at the Cannes Film Festival, which does, does I that mean, mean something? That, who knows? Does maybe that mean something. I don't, I don't know what that I'm means. for our purposes today. It means something. That means that at least they're not so embarrassed by it that they right. want to bury it in the woods. It looks it looks pretty good, and the good for him, Franco Faulkner Faulkner Franco. Like yeah, who I who would have guessed that that's where James Franco would have gone you know rather seems than like a, a smart choice seems like, like a, a good idea. Poet movie yeah it's, it's got a simon Pegg in it right no no it do- uh Wait, i don't know it? Uh, it, there's someone that's mostly that we know is a comedic actor hold on let me find this i spent most of the trailer just being gobsmacked being that it shocked that it was, looked okay that it didn't look awful is it simon uh, Pegg? i don't know uh but definitely worth watching that trailer and if you haven't read as i lay dying this might be a good time good summer faulkner yeah pick it up give it pick a shot it it's I'm going to spoil the start here. This is a good, if we're doing a chapter on Steer Here, which we are, I'm not writing it. Well, I might be, depending on what happens. But start, as I lay dang, not a bad place to start. Mm-mm. Not a bad place to start. So, I think some of the short stories are great, too. I love yeah. A Rose for Emily. Yeah, or The Bear and Good. Well, let's not do this. We're going to nerd out about it. <laughs> we're going to tip our hand about with the chapter. Creepy. But There's this one creepy of the there. novels. Can we say that? Of the novels, yes. not a terrible place to start. Not at all. Uh, okay, let's do. Why don't we do new new released books? Boy, I can't do it. newly released books. That's you. Let's do that next. Yeah, yeah. So we all, we've talked tons about our boy D. Brizzle, Dan yeah. Brown. Inferno is out this week. Uh, also, Neil Gaiman's graduation speech that he gave last year at the College of the Arts. Oh um, wait, that's they made that into a book. They made it into a book, and it's called Make Good Art. Oh, it's really well. The speech is really good. I'm sure the the transcript yeah. is great too. So they made it into a book. If you're looking for a graduation gift, you should probably give this because Neil Gaiman is smart and he says smart things in here about how hard it is to make good stuff and to do work that you're proud of and that you enjoy, but also how worthwhile it is to do the hard work of making good stuff. Uh, or if you just need some inspiration, it's a great, it's you a good solid. You can find this online. You can find, I think, uh, you can. the video of it. Um, so you can look at that as sort of a preview if you want to buy it as a gift or something like that. But it is really good. It's inspiring. you got someone who wants to be a writer or a designer or whatever, someone mm-hmm. that's working in a creative field. Um, that would be a really good graduation gift. 
As a brief aside, John Green, um, the YA writer who we love at Book Riot and who many of our readers love, just gave a commencement speech earlier this week at Butler. And the video and the transcript of that are available online. They're not a book yet, but also really great stuff there. He's so funny. He's funny he's about funny it. He's funny and he's smart about the internet yeah. and good stuff in there. Um, I another feel like now being smart about the internet is just sort of saying you're just smart. Like, mm. that's just it, right? I don't know. It seems like it's so a part of our lives that it's like hard to distinguish between being smart and smart on the internet. Yeah, but our lives are weird, Jeff. Like your life is weird. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's true. I guess that's fine. I don't know. Anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Actually, day. I did mean to interrupt you, but now I'm done, so you can continue. <laughs> Interruption concluded. Yeah. Right. Uh, the other new release that I'm excited to see happen is on Sal Malane by Rue Freeman. It just came out from Grey Wolf Press. I've read part of this book, but not all of it, and not because it wasn't great. Uh, it just got set aside for Dan Brown. Right. Uh, but it is a novel about the years leading up to the Sri Lankan War. Ooh. It is quiet and beautiful, and the country is drawn it's just drawn really gorgeously, the parts that I have read. And lots of literary people have loved this book and have been talking about it for months and months and months leading up to this release. Um, so if something more literary and historic from a smaller press is your thing rather than Dan Brown, you might want to check that one out. Well, let me pause there. On Sal Mal Lane. So it's O-N space S-A-L space M-A-L space Lane. And the is it a woman or a man? Rue Freeman. I don't know. Okay, Rue. Are you? Um, Rue, the author, is R.U. Freeman, just as you would expect. So if you're putting your Googlers on, looking for it, um, that's how you spell it. Okay, you got one more. Sure, and the paperback release this week is one of the ones that I'm uh, thinking is fun, is Naughties by Ben Masters, and that's spelled N-O-U-G-H-T-I-E-S, like the <laughs> like the, the not years, yes. the 2000s, not the naughty, like... Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey Naughty. Uh, and it's a sort of comedic novel that's essentially about leaving college and entering the real world and approaching that quarter life crisis. So if you've got high school, or not high school, if you've got college graduates or um, disillusioned college graduates from a couple of years ago who are trying to make sense of what this being an adult thing is all about and who could use a funny look at it. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's that sounds good. I, I haven't heard of that one. So that's interesting. Yeah, I, uh, I've heard some great things about that one. Cool. So, All right. Dan, we're down to our last story. This is going fast. We are. Uh, oh, take and it, this one. It's Judy Bloom. This is, this is whatever your wheelhouse is and whatever a wheelhouse is, this is in it for you. I think it is. So, Judy Tell me Bloom. something about this. I know Judy, Judy Bloom. Bloom. I've read Judy Bloom, but I don't know the book, so you have to take, take, walk me through this. Okay, Tiger Eyes. It's been a long time since I read Tiger Eyes, but Tiger Eyes is one of Judy Bloom's better known young adult titles. And it is currently in production uh, for film. So she does this interview with Entertainment Weekly recently. And the interview is about Tiger Eyes and Judy Bloom's career. And it's about the interviewer spending the weekend at Judy Bloom's house and writing about how awesome and friendly Judy Bloom is, which big surprise, Judy Bloom is awesome. And then there's this little line dropped in toward the end where they're talking about young adult books and Judy Bloom says that she's not a young adult writer and she doesn't think of herself as a young adult writer. And like my brain blew out my ears <laughs> when I read. I, I linked to this in Critical Link. Yeah, that's day, where I found it. Because I was reading the, uh, reading, the th the, reading the interview. Well, it's not really an interview. It's more like a profile-ish kind of yeah. piece. I don't know. It's, it's, it's not bad. It's not bad. It's not super incisive. But this line where she says... Um, I don't consider myself 
a young adult writer, she says firmly, firmly. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's it's so interesting. Now, this doesn't mean that she doesn't consider the books, some of the books she did write young adult. It doesn't say other way, just that she's not now for sure mm-hmm. not a young adult writer. Right. Now she has zero interest in writing more. What, what does that mean, do you think? What, why, why is she saying this? Why is she breaking our hearts? I don't know. Well, and the the thing that the uh, writer does note here is that young adult didn't exist as a genre when Judy Bloom was writing the books that are considered her young adult novels now. But, um, but why? So I don't know. Maybe she, as a writer, just never considered that as a category that she was doing. A lot of her books are, ch- are children's Maybe she's not like being pigeonholed. Like, maybe. Ju- I just write books. Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret is... I would say solidly young adult. It's, you know, a girl waiting to get her period and grow breasts the size of tennis balls. Right. Um, Forever might be what we call new adult now. There's sex in it. Oh, don't get young me adult on with that. Sex. Okay, sure. I got you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, but she did write Wifey, which is very solidly an adult book. And maybe this is just where she wants to go. I think one of the things that Judy Bloom did with her young adult books was, or the books that we think of as her young adult books was write about stuff that nobody else at that uh, time was writing about for really teenagers. And she saw a void that needed to be filled and a message that she wanted to get out. And like in forever, the teenagers are safe when they have sex and they go to Planned Parenthood and in the new edition, cause I, I reread it a summer or two ago, there's a note about how if, uh, from Judy Bloom about how she had written the book in the 2000s, it would have been updated and they would have gone to get STD tests. And, you know, like she's she's covering her bases and she's trying to talk to young people about things that she thinks they need to be spoken to about in an adult, non-judgmental way. And maybe there's just, there are enough writers to her mind that are doing that now for young adults that she doesn't need to do it. She can write books for grownups that don't have so much of a message, capital M. I don't know. Yeah, I can, I mean... I can understand how any kind of writer doesn't want to be called a adjective writer, right? Sure. Like you just want to do your thing and not be limited by how people think about what you do and feel limited about what people are going to buy or what your publisher thinks. I just thought that was really striking that she so clearly is pushing away this title of young adult writer. Um, she has, she's not pushing away her former books or anything like that. She's not saying I would have done it differently or I don't like them anymore. There's just something about that term that bothers her. So I thought that was I thought that was worth talking about. The trailer mm-hmm. you can see. Have you watched the trailer? I didn't. Yeah, trailers.apple.com is where I saw it. I'll put it in the show notes too. I don't know the book. It looks pretty good. Um, you know, teenage girl, displaced, parent stuff, Native American dude that helps her out. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's pretty. I, I haven't read the book, so I don't know, but um, Judy Bloom, I'd say one of our readers' favorite writers. Oh, like for sort sure. of you just do your reading life's favorite writers and so many of I read Judy Bloom when I was a kid and still like mm-hmm. Judy Bloom. We'll read them to my kids for sure. Oh yeah. Um, On those lists of books that shaped you as a kid, Judy Bloom is high up there for a lot of readers. I think I'm a little afraid to watch the Judy Bloom adaptations. I think I might just let Has her been books. one been adapted before a Judy Bloom? I don't think so. Well, su- the Fudge and Super Fudge, those stories, I think, have been done. Right. Those are more overtly kids They're books. They're kids though. books. Yeah. yeah. I I think that I might just like her to... A PG-13 Judy Bloom has yeah, not been to stay in to the my, silver screen quite yet. 
in my brain the way that her books are. But there was a great essay collection out last year called Everything I Know About Being a Girl I Learned from Judy Bloom, where like 25 female writers ranging from their early 20s up into the like middle-aged and, and older uh, women wrote about the lessons that they learned in their life from reading Judy Bloom's books. Um, What's that called? Did you say it's called It's called Everything I Know About Being a Girl I Learned from Judy Bloom. All right. That's a good... If you like Judy Bloom, that's a good wreck. I need to check that out myself. I think that's our show. I think so. That's it. So let's wrap it up. I'm Jeff O'Neill. You can find me on Twitter at Reading It. And you are? Rebecca Shinsky. And you can find me on Twitter at Rebecca Shinsky, which is S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. We write for bookriot.com. Check it out. Check out the show notes, bookriot.com backslash podcasts backslash episode two, number two. We've got an email set up for this. If you got a story idea, feedback, we messed something up, you love something, podcast at bookriot.com. Good. On Twitter at bookriot and facebook.com slash bookriot. You can find us there. You put bookriot in Google, there's going to be something. You got it. You You got us. Thanks so much, guys. We'll talk to you next week. Rebecca, you take care. You too.